Well, good morning. This morning, we want to continue our discussion of uh, key principles of financial management. And we're talking about riches more valuable than money. And for many people, that just seems like an oxymoron. How could there be riches more valuable than money? Most of us are very inclined to think money is the ultimate of wealth. And if we have money, we have everything that we need. We have success, we have security, we have satisfaction, you know, we have significance. What else could you want but that? But I want to just point you to a text to uh, hopefully disabuse you of that thinking. Uh, this is Jesus in his letter to the Laodicean church. This is the seventh of seven letters to the churches of Laodicea. This was apparently recorded somewhere around 90 AD, um, and Apostle John was the one that was the vessel through whom the, the, the Holy Spirit um, communicated this letter to the Laodiceans, but you can see it's being uh, recognized that the author of this is Jesus himself. So he starts out here, this is Revelation 3, verse 14, to the angel of the church, at Laodicea. So this is um, this is one of the seven churches that were signaled singled out by the Holy Spirit to receive a letter. And all of these letters, there's a, there's a certain level of rebuke. In some cases, if the churches were being persecuted, it was fairly mild. But in this case, it's not a persecuted church. It's a church that's very wealthy. It's made up of people who profess to be Christians. So. Um, it's allegedly a church, and I'm going to phrase it that way because Jesus doesn't really address them as to whether or not they're really a church or not. He addresses their heart. He addresses his observation of how they live. So he writes, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. So can there be any doubt that this is Jesus talking to them? He says, I know your deeds. The word deeds here is the word for works. I know your works, what you, I know what you do privately. I know what you do in your marriages. I know what you do in your Christian communities. I know what you do in the workplace. I know what you do in your community at large. Jesus says, I know everything about how you live, your lifestyle. And then he says that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. That's just an amazing statement. Now, to the Laodiceans, that had a lot of significance to them because they lived in a place that didn't have cold drinking water, nor did it have hot water for bathing, So, at least naturally. So they actually piped in hot water and cold water. There were two sister cities close by. One of the sister cities, uh, both of them about 10 miles away, one of them had a, a hot spring. And the other one was located on a river. And on the river, it had cold water. So they had two pipelines, one piped in hot water and one piped in cold water. Now, you can imagine the piping systems of that time were not that sophisticated. They probably weren't that well insulated. And so if it were really cold, then the hot water that was piped in, probably it, uh, it cooled off a lot before it got there. And if it were really hot, probably the cold water that was piped in got pretty warm by the time it got to Laodicea. And so when you use the word lukewarm, they understood what that meant. 
you know, you want to bathe in hot water and you want to drink cool water. And when you have basically lukewarm water for bathing and lukewarm water, you know, for refreshing yourself with a, with a drink, uh, it's not very, not very good. So he's using imagery they would be very familiar with, telling them, you are lukewarm. And because of that, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Like the imagery is very clear. They all had probably had that experience of going to the, to draw a drink of water from the pipeline that was piping in the cold water into the city, thinking this is going to be very refreshing. And then, but because it's so hot, the water's heated up. And so they take the drink and it's just yuck, lukewarm. I want nice, cold, cool water to refresh me. I'm so hot. And they wind up with lukewarm. And so the tendency there is just to spit it out because it's just so distasteful. It's so not refreshing. That's the imagery that Jesus is using here to tell them how he is not happy with them. He calls them lukewarm. Well, why is it that they're lukewarm? How could they be lukewarm? These are very wealthy people. So he goes on to say, you say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. So he's acknowledging, this is what you guys think. This is what you tell people. You think because you have money, you're, you're all set. You don't need anything. Yesterday, I was teaching this uh, two, not two days ago to my live, my live business roundtable meeting I have with clients here locally where I, where I live. And I asked them before I even started this text, I said, who here thinks that if you have money, you're, you're fine? Everything's fine. You don't need anything. You feel secure. You are successful. You're significant. You're satisfied. And everyone was honest and said, yeah, that's the way I feel. When I have money, I'm, I'm set. I said, you understand that means you're lukewarm. That is the definition of lukewarm. When you think that way, you are lukewarm. Well, that's virtually everybody I know in the body of Christ. I know very few people that can think beyond that. So listen to what Jesus said when you have that mindset. But you do not realize. Now that means you are deceived. You are you don't understand reality. You do not realize and here's your real state. You are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. Now if we had been in a conversation and Jesus was speaking these words, we might say, no, wait a minute, Jesus, you can't talk to wealthy people like that. These are the people that tie. They keep things going without them. Uh, we wouldn't be able to meet publicly and do all the things that we do. You know, we have a lot of church stuff. We do, we do, we got takes money to do all this stuff. And that's how we would respond because we don't really understand very well what God is doing and how he works. And we certainly don't have the perspective to understand how he values wealth, what's really wealth to him. So he uses five things here to describe, you know, the real state. First, you are wretched. Uh, wretched, this word is used in Romans chapter 7 when Paul describes the conflict between his flesh and the spirit of God that's internal in him. He's come to Christ but he still has this 
the vestiges of fleshly desires. Even though he's in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have become new, but he still has the vestiges of the flesh because the salvation process is not completed at regeneration. Regeneration begins a process. Sanctification continues the process and glorification completes the process. So salvation is this lengthy process. The way that you are, you know that you really know the Lord is that you are in the process. And the way you know you're in the process is transformation is happening in you. The Spirit of God continually enabling you to die to self, die to old fleshly patterns, to live aligned with the will and ways of God. So Paul is talking about this process going on and how vexing it is. It's a difficult thing. It's a challenging process. We all struggle with it. So he's pointing out to him right off the bat, you are wretched. You're conflicted. You're conflicted internally, and you don't even know you're conflicted. Furthermore, you're pitiful, which means you're to be pitied. I mean, of all things, you think that you are wealthy when you're actually not because you don't understand what real wealth is. And then he says you're poor. Poor means to be powerless. A person who is poor is powerless to accomplish whatever it is they're trying to accomplish. They are reduced to beggary. They're destitute of real wealth. They don't have really, they don't have anything of what they think they have. They're deceived, totally deceived. And so he says, you're blind. You're metaphysically blind. You don't see beyond the tangible. All you see is what you can see in the physical world, and that is not reality. Reality has to be seen from God's perspective, and that requires metaphysical awareness. And finally, nakedness. Nakedness reminds us of what happened when Adam and Eve sinned. And immediately they were filled with shame and were aware that they were naked before God. In other words, they were unacceptable. They needed to be clothed with something to make themselves present to the Father. So it's a reference to our unrighteousness, our unholiness, you know, our inability to make ourselves acceptable with God, our inability to self-save. So he's pointing out to them, you guys are not, you're not anywhere close to being what a Christian should be. Now he doesn't address whether or not they're really born again, but he certainly addresses the fact that they are very carnal. They're very, very fleshly people. They are not model Christians at all, if they are Christians at all. He doesn't even tell us whether or not they are. Now, that's not his point. His point here is to say, you are living like pagans. You're living like the spirit of Antichrist. You're living like humanists. You're living in a fallen state, not in a redeemed state. So then he's very kind to them here. He doesn't give them a command. He gives them advice. You know, Jesus is very capable of issuing a command. He's issued lots of commands, but here he simply says, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined in the fire. Gold refined in the fire refers to the qualities of real wealth, something that's really precious. It's been through the fire so that you can become rich. You, you can have riches as God defines riches but only as God defines riches. And you need to buy white clothes to wear so that you, you can cover your shameful nakedness. You see, white clothes refers to the righteousness. You go back to the garden, 
And Adam and Eve tried to make themselves garments to make themselves acceptable with God. Okay, that's imagery for performance, human performance. The fig leaves didn't work. They knew they didn't work. So when God showed up for his daily communion with them, they hid because they knew deep down the fig leaves were not good enough. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, after the judgments pronounced on them for their their fallen state, then it says that God clothed them. He clothed them with garments and shed blood was shed to clothe them with garments of a lambskin. So God provides the clothing we need to make us in right standing with God. So we can cover our shameful nakedness, but only if we go to Christ. We have to get the clothes from Christ. And finally, salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. This means you have metaphysical awareness. You have the ability to see from God's perspective. So interesting how that that Jesus is using more imagery that they would be very familiar with. We read these, and you might say, well, why did he say it this way? The reason he said it this way is because of the three major major economic engines that were active in Laodicea. The Laodiceans were wealthy because they were in finance, the banking business. They were on the trade route, so they conducted trade business. They also were uh, were in the clothing business, and they were in the eye care business. In other words, the healthcare business. So it's these three businesses that were the main economic engine for Laodicea that Jesus uses to convey the truth. You you want real wealth, not pseudo wealth, real wealth, you got to come to me. You want really to have right standing before God, you're never going to get it in your own flesh. You have to get it from me. And you want to see reality correctly, you're never going to see it just through your natural eyes. You've got to have metaphysical awareness, and that comes from me. You buy all these things from Jesus. Again, uses a marketplace imagery here to convey this truth that Jesus is the source of all that we need in life to live righteously before God. Then he gives us a very axiomatic reality. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. You see, God loves us first. And the mark that he has loved you is you begin to express love toward him and toward others. But the ability to love comes from God. It does not come from us. So those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, just like a father disciplines a son or a daughter because he loves them. He wants them to align with the truth of the word of God. That's what a true father does. So Jesus is saying, I'm rebuking you. I'm disciplining you because I love you. So now he gives them a command to these lukewarm people. He says, so be earnest. Well, how can someone who's lukewarm be earnest? You know, they're, they're fat, dumb, and happy is where they are. And the only way that you're going to be able to be earnest is you have to repent. To repent means you have to change your thinking. Stop thinking like worldly people, like unregenerate people, like pagan people, like the spirit of Antichrist. Stop thinking that way and start thinking Christianly based on the truth of the word of God. And he says, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. I am waiting 
at the door. Many times this verse is used as an evangelism verse, and perhaps it is, but keep in mind, he to a, a community that thinks they're a Christian church. So maybe that's a clue that maybe evangelism needs to be a priority for the Christian church because there are probably many that profess to be part of the Christian community who are really not part of the Christian community, and they need they need to <clears throat> this rebuke. They need this discipline, and maybe that's one of the things we look for. Who is it that is humbling themselves, that's repenting, that's changing their thinking and aligning with biblical thinking, and therefore their lives are changing? They're changing to reflect alignment with God. And when you do that, you begin to have fellowship with God. You begin to commune with him. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and we, he with me. So this is the idea here. We, you know, if we want true wealth, we have to learn to commune with God. We have to look to Jesus. He's the source of this, and we've got to define it the way he defines it. And he does not define worldly wealth, that is money, temporal wealth, real estate, collectibles, stocks and bonds, you know, gold and silver, commodities, all these kinds of things that we think are the measure of true wealth. These are just temporal wealth. And temporal wealth has value only in this existence. It is not transcendent wealth. It is valuable only here and now. And we have to know that true wealth is wealth that value, it's valuable beyond this existence. It is now transcendent wealth. So true wealth is transcendent. Worldly wealth or money in all the various forms is simply temporal wealth. True wealth has value both now and forever. So let me just give you some examples from Scripture of true wealth. And this is wealth that's more valuable than money more valuable than real estate, more valuable than gold or silver, more valuable than precious jewels, more valuable than collectibles, more valuable than, than commodities, anything you want to name, it's more valuable than that. And scripture tells us specifically, in many cases, things that are explicitly more valuable and others are implied to be more valuable. So let's just look at about 12 of these. First is the eternal life. Our eternal life. There's nothing more valuable than that. That's priceless. You cannot buy it. You cannot earn it. You have to be given that by the Father. So that's the first thing. The second thing is wisdom, and with wisdom is knowledge. Knowledge is a skill of how the universe works, and wisdom is now the capacity to be able to use that knowledge to live righteously before God, to live wisely before God, to live aligned with him. And scripture tells us that that is explicitly more valuable than silver or gold. Then you have good works. Good works is basically the works that God has called you to do. It's not just anything you think would be a, quote, good work. Just because you take a mission trip, for example, that doesn't make it a good work. Just because you give to the to your local Christian community, that doesn't make it a good work. Just because you pray before some kind of event doesn't make that a good work. What makes something a good work is it aligns with the purpose of God and specifically the purpose of God for your life. So this is, this is what he's talking about. That's what's really valuable. What is it you should do, not just what you could do. Then you have a spiritual return on investment. Spiritual return on investment has to do with getting a, an intangible return. When you see someone growing and maturing in Christ, 
That is a spiritual return on investment. When you invest in helping people get get grounded, rooted and grounded in Christ to find the call of God on their life, fulfill that call, that is a spiritual return on investment. You're not looking for a tangible return. You're looking to multiply yourself as a disciple in someone else, which is what Jesus did. Godly character. Godly character is absolutely critical. If you profess to know Christ and you're not growing in godly character, I don't know where to go in Scripture to assure you you know the Lord. First John chapter 2 tells us the way that we know that anyone really knows the Lord is that they will grow in their capacity to live like Jesus. That is a progressive thing that happens. That's called building godly character. So building godly character is absolutely true wealth. Then we have contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we take nothing out of the world, reminding us that money and all the tangible expressions of wealth, these are temporal. They do not transcend this reality. We will transcend this reality and we will take true transcendent wealth with us. Contentment is an aspect of godly character that is absolutely essential if you're ever going to live well in God's universe. Truth. Scripture tells us to buy the truth and do not sell it. We have to be purveyors of truth. Truth has got to be what we stand on. This is the hill that we die on, the hill of truth. We live or die holding on to the truth, being true to what we believe the Scripture tells us truth is, which it is best embodied in Jesus. Metaphysical awareness, that's the ability to see from God's perspective. We saw that where the Jesus told the Laodiceans, you need to buy from me ISAF. So you can put it on your eyes. So it gives you the ability to see beyond the physical, beyond the natural, to see God's perspective on reality. That's the only way to see reality correctly. A great example of metaphysical awareness is Jesus dying on the cross. To us, it looked like a very horrible thing. I mean, he died. It was a brutal thing. It was a mean-spirited thing. It was a wicked, evil thing. But through it all, God was doing the greatest thing ever. He was providing the basis for eternal life for those that he's redeemed. That's the beauty of it. When you see reality from God's perspective, you see what you see everything as God sees it, and you suddenly discover that things that you think are horrific and so out of order, God has used them for good. He's used them to purify. He's used them to sanctify. He's used them to cleanse. He's used them to accomplish his purpose. He's used them to bring alignment. He's used them to bring obedience in the hearts and minds of people. He's used them to bring transformation and facilitate repentance. All the good things happen in the midst of this, but you can't see it if you don't have metaphysical awareness. Genuine faith, it's Peter that tells us that genuine faith is more valuable than silver or gold. It's the enduring faith. It's the faith that believes in Jesus no matter what the pain point is. No matter how difficult it is, how trying it is, you believe in Jesus always. Can you be facing death, facing a bad illness, facing the most horrific experiences of life, and be at peace because you know the one who holds eternity? 
you know the one who has redeemed you. You know the one who has, has destined you for eternal life with him. You know that person. And that is so important to you that it doesn't matter how bad the circumstances are, you trust him. You always believe in him. You always lean upon him. That's what genuine faith is. And, and Peter says in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, it is more precious than silver or gold, and it will get tested. The testing is there not to show God your, that you have genuine faith. It's to show you that you have genuine faith. It's for you to see. Tests are always for you. God doesn't need any tests to see where we are. He knows exactly where we are. The tests are for us. The tests are to show us where we are and to help us grow and mature because some of them we will fail. And when we fail, God will use those tests to strengthen us so the next test we will do better. The next uh, aspect of true wealth is respect and reputation. <clears throat> we have that in Proverbs chapter 22 of how there's nothing more valuable. Silver and gold is not more valuable. In fact, reputation is more valuable than silver or gold. That's what God values is a great reputation respect that comes from living a godly life before men and generational transfer that is making disciples producing men and women reproducing ourselves reproducing godly people this is what we're called to do we are living in a multi-generational meta-narrative we're called to come in and connect with the past generations and to move forward and prepare the next generation to carry on the truth of Christ. This is what it is to be a Christian, is to live in this reality of generational transfer. And though it's always about what God is doing big picture long-term, it's never about me and my life. I play a bit part in this big drama called the meta-narrative, the big story of history. Everyone does. And the sooner we get, get clear that God is after his big story, first and foremost, and we have the privilege, we have the, the honor of playing a part in it and play our part, knowing it's just a part and not making our part bigger than what God makes it. Just be content with how God sees it. We must think that way. If we don't think that way, then we're deceived. We're thinking like the world. We have got to recognize generational transfer is the way to true wealth. And finally, an excellent wife. When you have an excellent wife, as most of us have, you have something that's more precious than silver or gold, particularly if that wife is maturing in Christ. So these are examples of true wealth. And I'm not saying this is an exhaustive list. These are just representative ideas, concepts of what true wealth looks like. That's far more valuable than any temporal wealth. Temporal wealth only has value here and now. Money has value here and now. You didn't come in with money. You won't go out with money. But all of these aspects of true wealth will bless you, not only here and now, but for eternity. Because these are the ways that we align with God and live life before God. Holy, righteous lives before God. And he alone can empower us to do this. He alone can guide us and direct us and enable us to do this. So may we have much grace and favor to do this well, to live before the Lord, valuing what he values, seeking to take temporal wealth and trade up for true wealth. We need to be like the Ethiopian eunuch. In Acts chapter uh, chapter 8, he, um, he is a 
he's a man who lives a very high life. He's very, very opulent. He is the chief treasurer of the Ethiopians. He's undoubtedly very wealthy, lives very comfortably, and yet he sacrifices his safety, potentially. He sacrifices time. He travels probably two weeks from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to know more about the God that he is reading about in copies of the Old Testament he's been, he's been able to buy. You know, it was hard to get a copy of Scripture back then, but he had enough money to be able to get one, but he didn't understand it. So he went to Jerusalem to worship the God of Scripture as best as he could, and he's going back, you know, from his trip to Jerusalem, back to Ethiopia, and he's wrestling with Isaiah 53 in his chariot, and the Holy Spirit sends Philip to him to explain the text to him. And he instantly receives Christ, and Philip baptizes him. Well, that's a beautiful story of the very first Gentile that we know of that came to Christ. But the reality is he risked a lot. He risked his safety. He spent at least a month, if not two months, of time doing this, and he spent a lot of money to do this. You see, he was willing to sacrifice all the temporal trappings of life, his own life, his wealth, his time, Everything, He's, he puts it all on the line to go to know Jesus. Real wealth, transcendent wealth. That's how you trade up. You value the true wealth of Christ and what he considers to be important and valuable. That trumps everything else. It trumps your own life, your own safety, and all of your financial resources. Trumps them all. Trade up. Use those things. Use your time, your talent, your treasure to go and gain more knowledge of who God is and go more intimate with him and grow up in Christ to serve his purpose, his will, done his ways for his glory. This is what it is to live in true wealth. So may the Lord grant us all grace to learn to live like that eunuch who willingly put everything on the line to gain the true wealth of Christ and all the benefits that come from knowing him. May that be our portion. In Jesus' name, amen.